Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rapplican. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. Uh, those of you that listen to the podcast series uh, over a period of time would know that I've touched on the consequences of the coronavirus in various contexts. Uh, we spoke about the consequences of it on the financial services sector uh, some months ago. We spoke about it uh, in relation to its consequences on the mental health of workers and, and also how people ought to manage different things. Now, we're several mo- months uh, further down the track in terms of the economic impact of the coronavirus. Uh, the banking sector in particular uh, this week has ended up being greeted with a very low interest rate announcement by the Reserve Bank of Australia. And you've also had the federal government recently relax responsible lending obligations. Both of these are in part the consequence of what I would call pandemic paralysis and attempts to try and get the economy stimulated and releasing the banks from some of the bank, some of the red tape. How did we get to this situation? Well, today, uh, EY, uh, formerly known as Ernst & Young, released... Uh, with the Banking Industry Survey, the Financial Services Sector Survey, and it is looking at the full-year results of Australia's major banks. Joining me is the partner in charge of the Oceania, Oceania part of uh, EY that deals with financial services, Tim Drink, who's going to take us through the findings of that survey and will take you through other issues that the banks are facing in the short to medium term. Tim, thanks for joining me. Great to be with you today, Tom. Thanks for thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Now, well, your uh, survey dropped today. Uh, some of the findings look very interesting. They point to stresses for financial services institutions. Can you take us through what what the key findings are for for the work you've done? Great, thanks, Tom. And look, this is a report we put out every six months, and. Uh, and, uh, you know, today the last of the banks released their four-year results for 2020. So so our report really encapsulates a bit of a summary of what's transpired during the year, what's driven the results, um, looked at aggregated uh, results across key line items um, and really sort of painting a bit of a picture of what's happened in the last 12 months and perhaps what the future looks like uh, for the major banks going forward. You touched on a few key points there, Thomas. Certainly COVID-19 has been a big factor for the banks, but... Frankly, some of the headwinds have been there for some time, and we are in this low growth environment, compounded by a um, a low uh, net interest margin as well. And the net interest margin this year uh, across the average of the big four banks, Tom, ended up being about 1.89%. Uh, that's down five basis points uh, from this time last year. It was 1.94%. So there's pressure on, there's pressure on the margin line. Um, that then compounded with you know low growth, uh, you then end up with a with a lower top line as well. So the other driving factor and you did touch on it was COVID nineteen, and that's had a, quite a big impact on the overall cash earnings of the bank. And uh, and cash earnings this year fell by nearly thirty seven percent, so down from twenty seven billion in aggregate across the big four banks, uh, down to seventeen point four billion. Uh, and that's a big hit uh, from the cash earnings point of view. A lot of that was driven by probably two key things. One is the impairment charges that came through, 
and, and some of those came through the bank's half-year results um, when the pandemic first occurred. I'll call it, you know, bunkering down the hatches, if you like, for what was ahead. And probably at March, we didn't quite know what was around the corner. The pandemic was just upon our shores and, uh, you know, equity markets were in turmoil. And um, as a result, the banks were sort of, you know, predicting that this could be very significant. And, uh, you know, many have commentated, you know, the worst recession in 100 years. And we ended up with uh, an impairment charge going through on average for, for the banks um, uh, this year of, of actually quite a, quite a significant number. Um, so they were up uh, about 3.7 billion uh, last year, and in aggregate this year, 11.2 billion has been put aside uh, for impairment charges, and a lot of that is due to the uh, the forward-looking credit adjustment, as we call it, a collective provision, which really braces for uh, the impact on the uh, potential losses that may flow through uh, the loan books uh, over the next 12 months, but also the duration of those loans as well. So it has been, a, I won't say a bit of a perfect storm, but uh, it does sort of feel as that way. And the banks are really bracing for what's uh, what's around the corner. And a little bit of that is the unknown. And one of the terms you mentioned there is impairment. Now, some of the, some of the listeners will know what that means, but others are probably not going to be as um, familiar with the terminology. When we talk about, uh, the impairment in the context you've mentioned, what are we saying? We're basically saying that there are some loans out there that we're not going to collect the full amount of principal and interest um, because the credit worthiness of the, of the customer um, has deteriorated since we, we drew down that, uh, that loan or granted that loan to them. So as a result, um, you know, under accounting standards, there's a couple of key elements in that. We have called stage one, um, if you like, where we look at uh, losses that will occur in the next 12 months. Um, but if we have uh, a significant increase in credit risk, um, which COVID-19 has, has driven a lot of that, we then move some of those loans to look at them in stage two and stage three. So effectively looking at, you know, what possible impairments will occur through the life of the loan. And if we're looking at, you know, 25, 30-year mortgages, that's a long time to look through economic cycles, um, increases in GDP, uh, rises in unemployment, et cetera, et cetera, all of those sort of macroeconomic impacts that we need to take into account and assess whether we will collect uh, effectively 100 cents in the dollar of principal and interest. So the banks have looked at all of those uh, those situations and looked at those forward indicators. And, and as I said in my opening, that in particular, it, when they made this assessment back in March and um, you know, not a lot was known at that point in time. And, and therefore, their estimates, uh, you know, I'll call it base case uh, and worst case uh, and best case, what were the, what was the likely output? And um, that based on various scenarios of house price um, uh, declines, um, significant increases in unemployment. And a lot of that was based on some of the statistics the RBA had put out at that point in time. Uh, and also um, the, the GDP, uh, impact to GDP. So, and as I said, and, and also on top of that, looking, I'll call it some overlays. So factors that they can't model, but they know so those events are, are probable to occur. So I'll call it a little bit, bit of black box uh, um, uh, quantitative mathematics in there, Tom, if you like, but 
a lot of it is based on statistical information with an element of judgment around overlays. And I think at that point in time, for what was known, it was a fair bit unknown, um, the bank set aside a fair bit. With six months on, I think, you know, some of those factors um, have actually played out um, quite differently. GDP growth is probably not as bad as what was first predicted then. Unemployment based on the RBA numbers on Tuesday, perhaps not as bad as what was first thought. But having said that, there's still a lot of uncertainty and uh, the deferral uh, of loans was put in place in uh, in April. And we saw a big, you know, that, that sort of those deferral, that take up was quite exponential early on. And, um, you know, particularly with small business. And a lot of that was really put in place. So particularly small business and homeowners could, could certainly take a pause, reassess situations, uh, particularly with their own employment situations. A lot of the, the economies, restaurants, travel industry, entertainment industry had shut down. So, um, but we have seen post, post 30 June, some of those deferrals come back uh, a little bit. And um, they're actually reasonably encouraging across the marketplace at this point in time. If I look at, uh, you know, what had occurred in, uh, in June, we had uh, the deferral rate was about 10% of, um, of total deferred loans across the sector. So it was about 270 billion of loans were moved into deferral. 11% um, um, deferral rate for, for housing, so 195 billion uh, of, uh, of loans and uh, 55 billion for small business, about 17% deferral uptake rate. Moving forward to September, some of those numbers have come back quite uh, quite significantly. Um, so housing has, has gone from 11% down to 7.4% and small business from 17% to 108 So I think they are sorts of encouraging signs with some degree of optimism that those customers now believe um, that they can move to start making repayments, whether it be interest only or, or P&I. I'd like to come back to that in a moment. There's something you've uh, mentioned in um, your remarks to do with what we, you, know, you refer to as being some black box uh, calculations. Um, how have analysts cope, cope with the transition between uh, the old way of accounting for, you know, for losses and the new method that is now uh, in place? Yeah, look, this new standard's been with us now for a couple of years, um, uh, uh, Tom, and I, and I think it's probably fair to say, largely they're, they're accepting of it, and but probably some elements of of, uh, of getting their head around, particularly in, in relation to those forward-looking assumptions, and, and that's probably been the big change. If I look at the total provisions set aside this year across uh, across the, the banks, um, we're looking at uh, about 27.8 billion that has been set aside for future credit losses. Now, it's hard to compare apples with apples, but um, you know the last time provisions were anywhere near that high was sort of back in the GFC. And, and frankly, post GFC, we've seen a continual release of provisions. And then this new standard came along and made some of those uh, comparatives a bit hard. But you know, when you do start to look at forward-looking adjustments, and particularly with what is on our horizon with, um, with, with COVID-19, particularly in Victoria, we've just come out of, um, you know, over a 100-day lockdown. And for those in Melbourne like I am, uh, it's a big relief. But there's parts of the world that are going back into it. 
and um, and and I think we've seen how quickly, um, particularly in the, in the case of Victoria, how quickly you can go from managing this process well and looking like being under control to, to not so. So I think you know when you look at what's happening through Europe and the US, um, it's uh, it's a pretty volatile time out there at the moment. And and as a as a modeler, credit modelers when they're coming up with these provisions. There are so many variables and assumptions and, and permutations on how this could play out. It's uh, and it's really interesting. I, mean, I, I think it one of the challenges for, for people who pick up bank uh, financial statements who aren't uh, users that have that level of sophisticated knowledge. It can be a little bit difficult to comprehend uh, what is precisely being looked at here. Yeah, no, that's right. And look, as I said, there's a lot of variables. When you look at um, uh, probably some of the key elements that they've disclosed in their um, predicted unemployment rate, as I said, um, best case, base case, worst case, um, uh, across housing price growth and collateral, if you like, um, or, or declines that may occur, um, and uh, and changes in you know wage assumption, and so all all of those sorts of factors. Um, it, it does become uh, quite a complex and, and a very judgmental calculation as well. And as I said, there's, modelling will only take you so far uh, and then there's an element of judgment. And I think when you go through the financial statements uh, of the banks, you'll see that a number of them have, um, have uh, recognised what is like an overlay or a, or a management uh, judgment on top of um, their modelling assumptions. Well, one of the things that... Uh will obviously be the case in a point of time when an economy is you know, in recession, kind of depressed, businesses have been shut down for a while. But the reasons we've both spoken about is that the financial services sector will be turned to, to perhaps treat the customer with a loan a bit, a uh, bit more um, gently, if you like, as as people try to get out of this. Uh, what do you, what are your thoughts on what the banks ought to be thinking about at the moment in terms of businesses that are you know, just emerging from lockdown, as we've started to see in Victoria, and getting a little bit more activity to the point where they might be able to start repaying the loans they owe. Yeah, it's, it's a really good observation, Tom. And I think one thing that the, the sector as a whole has done well is early engagement with its customers. And um, probably sometimes uh, banks or any financial services provider probably doesn't communicate with their customer enough through the duration of that product offering. And this has really given a chance for, for banks to, to reach out to their customers and for customers to reach out to their financial institution and um, provide a little bit more information about their the situation of their business or their personal situation and personal finances. Uh, and a lot may have changed since that loan was originally drawn down. And, you know, a lot of that has been quite manual. And uh, to some extent, it's, it's you know, the, the banks uh, employing additional resources, contractors and staff on the phones, calling customers, re-rating um, business banking and, uh, and small business clients and really trying to work through and provide solutions. Now, they haven't been able to get in contact with every single customer. Um, that has been that has been a challenge. But over, overwhelmingly, I think they've, they've certainly got to 
um, a very significant number um, in a reasonably short space of time. And as a result, um, you know, this is why I think this deferral process has been uh, has been quite encouraging, in particular some of those that have, have now rolled off because their institution has given them either a proposition or some options uh, to think about. And um, knowing that their bank is there to support them through this pandemic, I think is quite reassuring, particularly for small business owners who are doing it particularly tough where their business has been shut down. They haven't been able to pivot to digital or online trading, as an example. And um, so they're the ones probably feeling it the most that have just been in complete shutdown, particularly the, the tourism sector, travel sector, hospitality has been very hard hit as well. And as I said, for those in Melbourne, I think that's uh, uh, that certainly had a higher weighting than perhaps the rest of the states in Australia. Well, you can't really move hairdressing in the barbershop online, can you? Uh, you can't. I can tell you there's been a few home haircuts, <laughs> Tom. So, but, yeah. <laughs> but um, one of the things that I guess we could reflect on briefly, um, and I'm mindful of the time uh, as well, uh, is the nature of the non-financial reporting the standard of disclosure that you're, uh, you're seeing and the market's generally seeing because companies have had to talk more about going concern assumptions, talk more about the, the way in which they crunch the numbers to get to uh, what are expected credit loss figures. So how is the general observation of the clients coping with the that additional level of disclosure that comes naturally with the, the, the circumstances they found themselves in. Yeah, there's a lot of disclosure. I think you, you pick up an annual report and, um, you know, for those that aren't in it uh, on a regular basis, it can be quite overwhelming when you look at the, the numbers in there and the, the extent of disclosure and note disclosures and so forth. Um, it's probably just going up and up each year as... Um, as users potentially demand more information or, or institutions compelled to provide it. Um, but then you look at some of the non-financial information, Tom, you know, the disclosures uh, uh, around sustainability, environment and sustainability type disclosures, that's ever increasing and in, in in institutions' positions on those. Um, and, uh, you know, remuneration and all those sorts of things that are um, that are very important, and particularly with some of the changes coming down the pipeline for um, uh, you know remuneration disclosures that APRA are putting out around REM clawbacks and those sorts of things. There's probably as much attention on some of those I'll call it non-financial type metrics um, as there are on cash earnings and, and, and net assets. Those, those metrics are, are particularly anything to do with remuneration and. and clawbacks are a, a, a great fascination to uh, activists in the shareholder uh, community as well as financial journalists. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Tim, it, it's been great catching up with you again and touching on some of the factors that are driving the banking sector at the moment. If people want to uh, look at the full survey document that you've issued today, where can they go? Great, Tom. That's on our website, ey.com, and you'll find a, a thorough analysis of the, the results for the major banks for the financial year 2020, uh, including a pretty useful dashboard that touches on some of the key metrics um, that I've highlighted today. 
and a comparison across the institutions as well. So um, hopefully some of your, your listeners find that information useful. Tim, thanks. Uh, thanks for joining me again today. Uh, when we spoke in May, we were only looking at uh, the, the really the entry point to COVID. Uh, it's obvious that the, the pandemic has rattled the business sector and the banking sector as well. So thanks for joining me. You're welcome, Tom. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you.